Hallelujah. Father, with the words of this song we confess, and with the testimony of your scripture, which reveals to us the ground of our hope eternal, we profess this day that Jesus Christ is our hope, he is our defense, he is the one whose blood stands as the intermediary between us and the wrath that our sin deserved. He is the one who is the perfect once-for-all offering and sacrifice, Lord Jesus, to pay for our sins and the cost and the crimes and the horrific infraction against the holiness of God that everyone born in transgressions, transgressions and sins has wrought against the only pure, perfect, and holy God Almighty. He alone is the one who intercedes daily in our behalf, fulfilling that perfect role as high priest, representing Lord Jesus, our case before the Father on the grounds of his work on Calvary, that we might be in good stead with God Almighty. He alone spreads the covenant meal before us as we will celebrate next week in his body and blood, the very things whereby our eternal life is secure, that which he shed to purchase our salvation, that which was broken to pay for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon Jesus Christ, our Lord. These are the reasons for which we gather this day. And I pray that you remind our souls of the high cost and the precious gift that was paid in order to secure our attention and our fellowship and our gathering and our assembly, its purpose and intent to focus on the power of God and the gospel that has resurrected us to newness of life and to glorify and magnify on the throne of our praises and our understanding and profession, Jesus Christ, his gospel, Christ alone. I pray, Lord, that this would be the fruit of this service today to the praise of your name, the advance of your kingdom, the growth of your church, and the equipping of each saint, confessing sins that easily beset, walking ever increasingly in the picture and model and image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, unto the coming of that great day when you ransom all of your own unto glory. Oh, we long for that day, but in the meantime, what a privilege to gather in anticipation of all the benefits of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a great gift and privilege it is, as we've prayed and confessed and sung, to gather together in the name of Jesus to consider the very ground, the anchor, the foundation, the unshakable hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and His salvation. The story of salvation is very old indeed. In fact, the purposes of God from eternity past, when the purpose of the Trinity in agreement with one another endeavored to accomplish the will of the Father and the death of the Son and the application of the Spirit of the merits of grace to everyone who would confess and believe in time is a profound thought beyond, beyond our scope to fully comprehend. But what we do have in the Holy Scriptures as a segment of linear time in which the glorious truths of God's purposes unfolding in salvation is recorded from ways and means and type and shadow, interesting figures and important men all through the covenant line and in the lineage of the Messiah Jesus Christ up until the incarnation and then the apostolic witness following. And so anywhere you turn in this timeline of revealed truth is an incredible perspective and window to see the glories of God in our salvation. And so today we turn to the window of Isaac's continuing legacy in Genesis 27. Would you turn there with me? The last portion of Genesis 26 on into Genesis 27, 25 will be our primary text today under this title, Providence versus Dysfunction. 
You could say the sovereignty of God versus the frailty of Isaac's family. The real turmoil and trouble and sin, in fact, that each member in our story today displays. Truly a dysfunctional family. How is it that God preserved the seed and his purposes of salvation and light of such horrific circumstances, both on the outside and on the inside of men's hearts? Well, this is a testimony ultimately to the power and the providence and the sovereignty of our almighty God. And may I submit that as our main theme this morning, and grand takeaway from our passage today. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to magnify Jesus Christ in contrast to sinners. Very simple, to magnify Jesus Christ in contrast to sinners. We have four sinners to consider in our text today. They would be Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau. And surely their dirty laundry is there for us, but there's a purpose that their story is honestly recorded. And so today we endeavor to learn what the Lord would have in the reading of His Scripture. Would you stand once again out of reverence for the reading of God's Word? And let us consider these verses together. Again, we're in Genesis 26, 34 through 27, verse 25. Hear now the holy word of God. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Verse 35. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. 27.1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, he said, and he answered, Here I am, he said. Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And out, of, and out to the field, and, and, excuse me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Verse 5. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the, bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them delicious food for your father. Prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves, and you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, as mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. And Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her son, younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands, and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, and your soul may bless me, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near. Please come near. 
that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, His voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it to me, near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Young people, let me open with a little trivia question for you. Can anyone name one of the wells, or maybe more than one, in the prior chapters? The last message we talked about four Hebrew names for wells. Well of the living one that sees me, that's the well that Hagar received a visitation from Yahweh at. But I'm talking about four wells that Jacob dug. I'm sorry, Isaac dug. So, did I hear one back there? A Sheba, that's correct. Sheba means oath. Does anyone remember any of the other Hebrew names of those four wells? Esek was one. Uh, Shidna was one. Uh, Sheba was one. And Rehoboth. So as we see these uh, wells in the uh, passages in, uh, in the prior chapter, what we contended last time, last week in our message, was that these four themes create or basically outline uh, patterns in Isaac's life and God, that involve God's purposes in spite of his sin that resurface at different times. In chapter 26, the trajectory of events begins with turmoil that eventually gives way to gracious provision and covenant assurance. These themes are marked by the naming of wells, Esek, Sidna, Rehoboth, and Sheba. Esek meaning quarreling, roughly speaking. And then Sidna meaning hostility. Rehoboth, broad places or blessing. And Sheba meaning oath, respectively. And so we saw in Genesis 26 how hostility and quarreling followed Isaac in Gerar, but then the Lord blessed him, gave him broad places, gave him blessing in the land, and then God confirmed his covenant with him, oath. And God confirmed another covenant, or another covenant was confirmed between him and Abimelech, giving him favor. And thus these are themes of Isaac's experience in Gerar. But today in our text, these themes are now playing themselves out in Isaac's family. That is to say, the generational aspects of the covenant, of covenant succession, are in view as we witness Esek and Sitna in the home. That is, in Isaac's home, there was quarreling and hostility. 26, 34 through 35, the last two verses of our prior chapter say the following. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and then another lady. And then verse 35, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Do you hear it? Hostility, conflict, quarreling. These women from a foreign people made life bitter. There was tension in the home. This is the Esek and the Sitna that the wells commemorated with respect to tensions in the land. But now this uh, record shifts to conflict in the home. Chapter 26, 34, and 35 signals a shift in the record from the account of Isaac's influence in the land to a behind-the-scenes look at his family. In our text today, there is no hero to root for save the providence of God. And one of the most striking things I think we see in the text 
is to ask this question, who's the good guy? We talked about this before. And this sometimes is a theme in these types of passages. And the answer is no one. No one of the mere human actors in this story are the good guy. In fact, each one of them, it seems, is bent on messing things up. <clears throat> there is no hero that is to say, save Yahweh himself, the providence of God. It is the sovereign hand of the covenant keeper, Yahweh, that holds the promises of redemption together in spite of the efforts of four individuals threatening to upset the entire plan as each pursues his own self-interest. Primarily, that is what I submit to you, the motivating factor, whether it's Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, or Esau, is their own selfish preferences. That is what's featured in their motivations in our text today. Nevertheless, the covenant promises continue. Well, to who do we owe this miraculous provision? It is to the work of God and His sovereign hand in spite of the frailty and the sin of, yes, even those who He's called to continue the covenant line. We have noted tension in the family already as we witnessed Esau trade his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. You guys remember that? Kids, you remember that? Where Jacob convinced Esau in a moment of weakness and hunger to trade him the right to the family's greater portion of possessions and to rule the family in exchange for one single meal? Well, here again, we have the occasion of a meal which helps to illuminate or illustrate the relationship of the characters to the covenant purposes of God. And this is a meal that Isaac asks his son Esau to prepare from the wild game of the field. What do these texts mean? What is the takeaway and purpose of them? Well, Romans 9, 8-13 answers, and I'd like us to turn there first to get some perspective from the apostle. This is one of those passages, at least the context, that Paul directly cites to give us insight into the nature of God and the nature of man with respect to the covenant of salvation. And we read as much in Romans 9, 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word of God, excuse me, wrong, wrong uh, chapter there. Romans 9, 8 through 13. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Pause there. The children of the flesh, the most probable candidate to be the chosen one would be the firstborn, the strongest, the oldest, the leader, the man's man, the Esau. But this story, according to Paul, contains this message. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Did you catch the purpose statement? A part of this conflict and the way God chose, counterintuitively to the culture and the expectations of the characters involved, and worked a mighty work of salvation, preservation, in spite of their sin, part of the purpose in all of this was that God would show His purposes of election. 
What makes the difference between the saved and the unsaved? Is it the character and qualities and the merits and the works of the subjects of salvation? No. It is God's sovereign choice in spite of the sin and the wickedness that plagues every human heart. And now we're going to see in our passage today just how wicked that human heart can be when we're moved by our fleshly passions, our immediate appetites, our selfish preferences, and do not take into view the word of God. Do any in Isaac's family validate themselves in this account? Again, where's the hero in the text? Only God himself. Certainly no one in Isaac's family proves himself to be virtuous in our text today. What we glean from Genesis 27 is that the historic teaching of the church is true. What we glean from Genesis 27 is salvation is by grace through faith alone. This is a summary of the apostolic gospel of the New Testament. It is most clear, it is all the more clear, that there is surely no one deserving and no one who could by his own power secure his salvation apart from Christ alone, especially when we consider truthfully the human heart and we see a good example of it, four good examples of that in our text today. With that introduction, I'll give you a heading and let's do a quick character sketch of these four individuals, Esau, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob. Heading is this, the covenant line and purposes of God continue in spite of the following. Number one, Esau's covenant compromise. Number two, Isaac's failing vision. I just use that term because I feel, or I think it's um, important to notice that the failure of Isaac's eyesight serves as an illustration of the failure of his covenant or spiritual eyesight. Esau's covenant compromise, Isaac's failing vision, Rebecca's usurpation, which means to take charge when it's not in your authority to do so. And finally, Jacob's deception, which, kids, that just means to lie, Jacob's lies. The covenant line and purposes of God continue in spite of all these things. Number one, the covenant line, the purposes of salvation, the lineage of the Messiah continues, even though Esau is full of covenant compromise. Notice again these opening verses of our text today. He was 40 years old. What did he do? He took a wife, two of them, in fact, from the Hittites. First violation, God had ordained the covenant of marriage to be from the beginning, as he revealed in Adam and Eve, one man, one woman for life. But already, again, in the sins of, repeating the sins of the forebears, we have polygamy in view. Secondly, Esau was part of a covenant line, a family who was set apart and called to be distinct from the peoples of the land. And the covenant of marriage was closely related to the covenant of type of Abraham, of the Abrahamic covenant. Therefore, they were not to intermarry with unbelievers. Well, I, Esau broke both of these laws and both of these directives of the covenant and taking for himself foreign wives. And these weren't the only two that he took. Later, turn over to 28 verses 8 and 9. And this gets even worse. Out of spite, Esau does the following. When Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, uh, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abram's son, the sister of Nebaioth. You see what's going on here? Isaac, or Ish, I'm sorry, Esau. I'll get the names mixed up throughout the sermon, no doubt. Esau has, out of vengeance and spite, in his anger, upset that he not only lost a birthright, but now he's been tricked out of blessing. 
related to that, or, and, and, so, and so forth, sees himself as the victim, and is so angry at his parents that he purposely takes a wife from the foreign peoples in order to make life miserable for them. And in so doing, Esau commits, once again, covenant compromise. Now, in Genesis 3.15, we have two major categories of humanity outlined. There are those, we've mentioned this many times, but it's playing out in our text again today. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Hey kids, which do you think falls into which category? Is Jacob the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent? Which would you say? Jacob. Seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent? That's correct. What about Esau? Is he following in the line of the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent? Seed of the serpent, that is correct. Right here we have this animosity and we have this conflict and we have seed of the serpent kind of thinking motivations and sin that is coming out in Esau's actions. Now, these foreign wives, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. In 2746, Rebekah vents as much to to, uh, Jacob. Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm sorry to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And so you see this conflict. You see this Esek, this Sidna that is taking place, this hostility and conflict in the lives. How would God preserve a covenant line with such hor- under such horrific circumstances? Truly, it would take a miracle, and it did. Now, this compromise is not unique to Esau. Abraham and Isaac... Uh, Both had problems in their marriages, and they committed covenant compromise when they lied about their wives in order to protect themselves from harm. Exactly the opposite of what Jesus does. He preserves the life of his church and his bride by dying for her in the exact opposite view or in the exact opposite uh, conviction. Uh, Isaac and Abraham both put their wives in danger for the preservation of their own life. This is covenant compromise. Esau is in view primarily in this point here, in my point here, but let it be known that each one who sins falls into covenant compromise. They violate the terms and the relationship between themselves and a holy God. This is what sin is. As the confession says, it's any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Sin is covenant compromise. So we see this in the foreign wives of Esau. We see it in the relationships between Abraham and Isaac and their wives, and we see it in the relationships of intermarriage in the people of God moving into the future. Esau's covenant compromise showed up in other ways too, in despising his own birthright. In Genesis 25, just to remind you of this record, so you remember the story, kids, don't you? Jacob was cooking stew. Esau came from the field. And just like the senses are really in view in our story today, you have touch, you have taste, you have smell, you have lack of sight. Here again, you can imagine that aroma of this lentil stew. That doesn't really sound good to me. One humorous anecdote. I, one morning I woke up and I saw that uh, my wife had been kind enough to make cold cereal and uh, leave it. And so I took some cold cereal, some scoops in it. I put it in a bowl, poured milk, a little bit of sugar, and quickly decided it needed more sugar. I took another bite and quickly decided it needed more sugar still. And yes, saints, I was eating lentils. I choked it all down. Now, imagine the opposite of that. You're famished, you're hungry, and lentils never sounded so good. And so this wafting wafting smell of this incredible meal fills the nose 
of Esau as he comes out of the wilderness. And so Jacob takes the opportunity, sell me your birthright now. And you know the story. And negotiating his birthright, he says, I'm about to die. Living, just like his father illustrates in our text, in the appetites of the moment. He sells his birthright to Jacob for the cost of one bowl of soup. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank and rose and went his way. And notice the narrator, Moses, says the following. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau despised his birthright. Hebrews 12 goes on to say that he stands as a negative example, as one in the seed of the serpent. Do not be sexually immoral, the scriptures say, like Esau, as you can see here, traded his relationship with the Lord, the promises of the covenantal lineage for his appetites of the moment. That's what sexual immorality is, and it's pictured well here. The aroma of food causing you to lose perspective and to live in the moment. Forget the big picture. That's what happened to Esau. It was covenant compromise, and he did not repent of it. Hebrews 12 tells us, though he sought it diligently with tears. He's crying. He's of anguish of soul. In our chapters, you continue to read. It's not tears of repentance. My prayer is that we would not be like Esau. But when God reveals by the measure and standard of his holy word, our own covenant compromise, because that's what sin is, that we would shed tears of true repentance, that we would not spite the Lord, that we would not spite his agents of correction in our lives. Children, listen to me. Your parents, if they are good ones, will bring a word of correction to you. Will you submit to God's word through your parents, even though the appetites of the moment are so strong? And even though it's so hard to deny your flesh, if you do so, you will prove yourself as God grants grace, changes your heart, and you walk in fruits of repentance, the seed of the woman. But those who begin to act a rebellion in spite, double down on their covenant compromise, they will prove themselves to be the seed of the serpent. Oh, let it not be, O oh Lord. But as your gospel is preached among us, may we repent of our covenant compromise and submit to the word of God proclaim that we might turn and live. So he had foreign wives, he despised his birthright, and he had a murderous heart. One final verse in this category to document Esau's covenant compromise, 2741. This is a little fast forward, but now Esau, after this whole incident of Jacob stealing the, or the blessing in this case, how do you think Esau reacted? 41 answers. Now Esau hated Jacob, because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So what was his plan and purpose? Esau, to murder his brother. Kids, does this remind you of another story? Were there two brothers? Yes, uh, Judah. Cain and Abel, that's exactly right. Now how in the world would the covenant line and purposes of God continue in spite of fratricide, that means murder one's brother. In the case of those early sons of Adam and Eve, well, another son would be born, Seth. Similarly, how in the world will God's covenant line and purposes continue in light of the murderous intent, the scheming and plan of Esau, who is much stronger, very good at hunting, adept at weapons, hot temper, and was passionately given to the appetites of the moment, how would God preserve Jacob's life? The answer is the theme of this message. It is the providence of God. The covenant line was secured through Jacob in spite of his sin and in spite of his brother's plan to kill him. Praise the Lord.
Major point number two, the covenant line and purposes of God continue in spite of Isaac's failing vision. 27.1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dimmed so that he could not see, he called Esau his younger son or older son and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. He, that is Isaac, said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, your bow. Go out to the field, hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Isaac's failing vision. There is sort of a correspondence in this lack of physical sight and lack of spiritual sight. Somehow, Isaac has lost the vision of God's prophetic purposes in the continuation of the line. And he has gone back to something like he has defaulted in his sin nature to a fleshly favoritism. Hey guys, who do you think was Isaac's favorite son? Jacob or Esau? Esau is correct. My son, my older son, you know, come to me. Here I am. I am old. Ah, go get some of that meat that I love. You can see what Isaac truly values. His physical blindness illustrates his spiritual short-sighted perspective. He is given way in his plan here to fleshly favoritism. Why does he call his older son and not his younger? Is it because he's paying mind to the covenant? No, it's because he loves the smell of game. And if he could just have that taste in his mouth. And now we know a little bit the sins of the father may well have influenced Esau himself. Given over to the appetites of the moment and compromising the covenant all the while. Isaac's failing vision, as he grew older and more feeble in years, he demonstrated a feebleness of character and spiritual vitality in this instance as well. Those of you who are on the more older end of the spectrum, you know, the spectrum of average young person to old person, prepare your hearts against this temptation when you are old. We can tell from the scriptures that as we age, we will have less natural zeal probably to pursue things that we were passionate about before. And maybe our sight becomes restricted because of physical limitations, the wearying of our flesh, the loss of our faculties, and so on and so forth. And under those conditions, it can be tempting. We see in the example of Isaac himself to lose the priority of finishing well, of remembering the covenant, of continuing strong in the Lord, though you have not much physical strength. Continuing to see by the eyes of faith that his purposes are secure, though you don't fully understand them, even though your physical eyes are dim. As your physical eyes, so to speak, grow dim with age, may it be our prayer and may it be our calling goal that our spiritual eyes would be open all the wider to the purposes of God. Nevertheless, Isaac does not exemplify this in our text. He shows a fleshly favoritism. He demonstrates a failing vision, at least in this instance. More than this, he, places, he demonstrates sensual priorities. The word sensual means of the senses. And I wonder if you noticed how many senses are in view here. You can kind of almost, uh, you can imagine you know, your senses, prepare for me involved in the story, or the senses of the characters involved in the story. Prepare for me delicious food, such as I love. Bring it to me so that I may eat and my soul may bless you before I die. The blessing, the footnote, thy priority is the sensual experience of my favorite meal. Has it ever 
been like a curious thought to you? I, my kids were discussing the other day, what would be your last meal before you died, you know? Isn't that a strange thought that you would pay, uh, consider like if you were dying, if you were on your deathbed, and the most important thing to you would be choosing, oh, I just love macaroni and cheese. I don't know what you would choose. But say you're a huge fan of macaroni and cheese. If that is the preeminent thought in your mind as you're facing death's door, something's wrong. You're placing a priority in the things of sensual experience. And this is what Isaac was doing later. He says, come close, my son, that I may smell. And so he smells of his clothes and not listening to the Spirit. You know, sacrificing wisdom along the way, these sensual priorities mark the character of Isaac, at least in this instance. And these illustrate the limitations of the flesh. When one lives according to his senses, what does he sacrifice? You could write these down. Discernment, faith, and wisdom. When one uh, operates according to his senses, when he places a priority on the things of the immediate gratifications, desires, or whatever, your perceptions, what do we sacrifice? Discernment, faith, and wisdom. All these are suspended in lieu of indulging the appetites of the moment. And one more thing in this, we find that inadvertently, well, more or less directly, Isaac was affirming with a blessing the very things that were a character defect in Esau. Esau was a hunter. He loved food too. The thrill of the chase and the smell of the food, that's what Esau lived for. Maybe if he had a shirt, he would say, hunting is life or eating is life. The rest is just details. You guys remember those shirts? This is the kind of misplaced priorities that is evidenced in our text today. So Esau could relate to his old man's desire in this moment. And what's wrong here? Well, discernment, faith, and wisdom are sacrificed as a result of this. And furthermore, Isaac, is by attaching a blessing to these things, is affirming the very things that Esau needs to repent of. Parents, do you affirm the things in your child's preferences that they need to repent of? Or are you careful, even though it's not what they want to hear, to emphasize consistently the Word of God as the standard by which every appetite, every desire, every preference, every sensual uh, inclination must bow? Finally, Isaac's failing vision First and foremost, it is evident in him disregarding the Word of God. Word of God, you say? What was that word? 25, chapter 25, verse 23. A prophecy to Rebekah. Of course, this was his word to both of the covenant parents, Rebekah and Isaac. And the Lord said this to Rebekah. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, who is stronger than the other? Well, naturally, that was Esau. But notice the last phrase, the older shall serve the younger. So Isaac disregarded the word of God in this moment. He was about to attach a blessing to the physically stronger, the firstborn, the oldest, according to the things that he valued more in the flesh and according to perhaps the, the cultural pressures and inclination of the day. God's covenant, the truth of the gospel, always is countercultural in a pagan setting, and so long as this world organizes around their fallenness. 
It takes a, a counter-cultural resolve to stand for the truth of God's word and his covenant when you're in a society that values other things. And that message is for us today. Isaac, in his short-sightedness, in his lack of spiritual vision, in his failing eyesight spiritually, he disregarded God's word, the very prophecy that said, the older shall serve the younger, and the stronger, uh, and though one be older and one be stronger, nevertheless, the covenant promises will be tied to the younger, to Jacob. Isaac's failing vision. The covenant line and purposes of God continue in spite of Esau's covenant compromise. Isaac's failing vision. Major point number three, Rebekah's usurpation. What does that mean? Taking authority that's not yours. Firstly, we see that Rebekah defied her husband. Good or not good? Not good. Well, Isaac, had, yeah, but Isaac was doing the wrong thing, you might argue. We'll get to that. Verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game, prepare it uh, for me, delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord, uh, before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Usurping authority. Rebekah is commanding Isaac to do something in defiance of her husband's I'm sorry, Jacob, to do something. Thank you. In defiance of her husband's wishes. There's a problem here. This is the dysfunction we were talking about. The home is out of order. The, the woman, the a wife is usurping the husband's role. She's commanding her children uh, in contradiction to her husband. The son, Jacob, is listening to her mother. Esau hates his brother because of the consequences. And Isaac is passive and blind to the whole thing. Everything's messed up. Genesis 3, 16, coming home to roost. I will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And furthermore, there will be enmity. That'll be the default sinful position in the home. He shall rule over you and your desire will be for your husband. We see these sinful tendencies playing out. So we continue in verse 10. You shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So first of all, Rebecca's usurpation, we see this in her defying of the husband. And yes, to answer the question, wasn't Isaac's intention wrong? Yes, it was. But I want you to notice a difference between Rebecca's actions and Abigail's. Do you remember Abigail? She made an appeal to David, who was about to kill out of spite and wrath her husband unjustly. What did Abigail do? Did she defy her husband? Did she go against him and his wishes? No, what she did. She did the right thing. She went to her husband, appealing to a higher authority still, the word of God, and said, please do not let the blood guilt, come, do not let blood guilt come upon this land by defying God's law. Surely the Lord will judge this man. Abigail is one of my heroes. I think that lady is awesome. She was no pushover. She was no wallflyer. You know, uh, feminist uh, presuppositions, feminist assumptions, you know, they be them accursed. Abigail was a strong woman, but she did the right thing. She appealed to the Lord. On the ground of God's law, she appealed to her husband. And what did David do? He praised Abigail for pointing out the truth, repented of his intent to kill the owner of the vineyard, and so on. This is what Rebecca should have done. After hearing her husband's intent, appealed to the law of God, Go to Isaac directly and to say to him, 
you know that God has prophesied to us by the word of Yahweh himself that the older shall serve the younger. This is not right. Let us seek God. Please do not do this, lest a curse come upon us. Instead, what does she say? Oh, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. And, and, and here you see this flippant attitude. There are three things under Rebecca's usurpation that we see. We see her sinfulness evident in defying her husband, not going through proper channels, in her pragmatism, which means justifying by whatever works. God has ordained the ends and God has ordained the means. God never means for his covenant to be fulfilled by breaking his law. But pragmatism, that is strategy that accomplishes uh, an end by any means necessary, is against God's word. And we can be easily guilty of this. And Rebecca was guilty of this. She decided to break God's law. We'll ask you kids how she did so in a minute. She decided to break God's law in order to accomplish, in her own strength and means, the covenant promises for her son. Now, God in his providence worked in spite of all this sin. Nevertheless, that was sinful. And finally, this presumptuous or cavalier attitude. Yes, this is, it might be a judgment-worthy action. This is something that we shouldn't be doing and is worthy of punishment. But nevertheless, let it be on me. Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. Go bring them to me. In other words, hey, don't even think about that right now. Don't even think about the consequences of sin, whether or not this is a judgment-worthy action. There is no time to waste. So you see, time was so short and the stakes were so high that Rebecca suggested a pragmatic action which violated God's law to accomplish something that she am sure she thought was justified because God had given the promise. Let us take heed. And if we betray these same tendencies, repent. Now how in the world would the covenant line and the purposes of God continue in spite of all of this? Well, the glory of God, the holiness of the same. And the beauty of Jesus Christ is only magnified against the backdrop of these sinners. Jesus Christ is magnified in contrast to Esau, to Isaac, to Rebekah, and finally in contrast to Jacob. 27 verse 18. This is Jacob now. So he went into his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Okay, kids, question for you. What laws... Which of God's laws did Jacob break in this story? Which of the Ten Commandments? What did I hear? Lie. Thou shalt not? Lie. Yes, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Okay, adults, listen closely. I'll ask you the second question in a moment. I am Esau, your firstborn. As the children have rightly pointed out, he lied. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game. Your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So adults, what was the second commandment that Jacob broke in our text today? Thou shalt not lie, and thou shalt not what? Anyone know? That is correct. Because the Lord your God granted me success. In that moment, Jacob took the name of Yahweh in vain. He used the name of God to strengthen his position in a lie. He appealed to God and his word and his character 
as a tool for his self-deception, for his attempts to deceive his father. It's easy to pass over moments like that quickly in the text. And it's easy to characterize taking the Lord's name in vain by using God's name as a cuss word, which you should never do. But arguably, the breadth of evil represented in an appeal to God's name to justify something other than his character is much deeper still than a mere flippant obscenity. We must be so careful about the high and holy and revered name of God. And may we not treat it lightly or to our own advantage or use the Lord for our fleshly preferences, our deceptive ends. Because if we do so, we take his name in vain. Do not attach the name of God to that which is not in accord with his holiness, his purposes, his covenant, and his law. It won't be long. I hope you're looking forward to it. When we'll have a fairly long, I trust, message series on Psalm 119. If you don't love the law of God, that's going to be a wearisome message series. But if you do, you will cling to it and have an appetite for it by the Spirit. If the Spirit gives you that appetite, that hopefully will devour and love it as much as Esau loved a good meal, as much as Isaac wanted that last bit of game in his mouth before he died. You see, on one side of the coin, we have the appetites of the flesh. And on the other side of the coin, we have the appetites of the Spirit. And this story goes to show the contrast. God's covenant line and purposes would continue, but it did so in spite of Esau, Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob. Jacob's deception is in view. He was complicit and passive with his mother's wicked plan. He bore false witness and lying blatantly to his father, and he took God's name in vain to strengthen his position. Commentators have noted, I noted this is a great note in my text, in the future, in God's mercy and grace, the Lord would reveal himself to Jacob as the God of Jacob. There's going to be a shift in the heart of Jacob. He will not refer flippantly and in his sin to Yahweh as the Lord your God, you know, as a tool to gain what he wants to his father. But the Lord will touch Jacob's hip, you know, and... Uh, He'll, he'll have an encounter with the authority of God in the future in powerful ways. And Yahweh will show him who's boss. And he can't just get away with taking his name in vain. And what will Jacob do? He will repent on his knees. And he will go from using God's name to his own personal gain to understanding that God is his God, his authority, his sovereign, his father, his promise of a Messiah in the future. His only hope for salvation. Young people, many of you are in transition spiritually in some way right now. And the Lord is begging you to consider this question. Is God the God of your parents or is he your God? Is Yahweh the God of your mom and dad or is he your God? As the Lord works on your heart, this is what will happen. And I pray that you will follow in the footsteps, not of Jacob's deception, but of Jacob's repentance, that Yahweh would become your God. In closing of this message, again, my purpose is to magnify Jesus Christ in contrast to sinners. We have seen that the covenant line is threatened, the short-sighted view, by the incredible sin, wickedness, the lack 
of, as we said, discernment, faith, and wisdom in four parties, Esau, Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob. It's as if they're conspiring to mess everything up. Yet, nevertheless, in spite of this, God preserves the promise of the Messiah. The blessing does reside on the rightful heir. Repentance does eventually come for Jacob. Isaac does prove to be a man of faith. And the lineage of the Messiah continues for another generation, even though Esau is bent on killing his brother. How can this happen? It can happen because God is sovereign in salvation. And his sovereignty is evident in the covenant line of old. Let me close with a little piece I wrote just to summarize a few contrasts in this story between our perfect Messiah and the failure of these characters. One way that we can understand the beauty of God in res with respect to a passage like this is to illustrate messianic hope by contrast. No, for instance, the testimony of Jesus stands in stark contrast to the repeated violations of the law of God as a means to selfish ends in this account. Here are the, for instance. Whereas Jacob was directed by his mother's deceptive plans and schemes, the true covenant son to come would acquire access to the covenant by a perfect obedience. Jesus perfectly submitted to the will of the Father in his earthly ministry and his atonement on Calvary. Jacob cannot save us. Don't place hope in the patriarchs. Modern-day Jews may go no further than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As a ground of their hope, the lineage and heritage of these mere men. The, their scriptures themselves teach as much as the Old Testament is preserved and their tradition not to do such a thing. We look to the Jacob to come, if you will, the son of Abraham, the son of David, who displayed perfect obedience, which is necessary for our salvation. Where Jacob obeyed his mother and disobeyed his father, Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the father. Whereas Jacob was direct, or whereas the father's will in Jacob's case was corrupted by his fallen and fleshly preferences, the will of the Father in the case of Jesus was absolutely holy and perfect in all his redemptive purposes. Jacob's will was, ah, I want one more good meal before I die, and if you give it to me, I'll give you a blessing. The will of the Father in our story. However, in the case of Jesus and his Father, the will of the Father was absolutely holy and perfect to preserve for himself a people at the cost of his son's sacrifice, and that is the will that Jesus perfectly submitted to in his obedience. Whereas the covenant meal was demanded by Isaac as a condition for blessing. Did you notice that? If you want a blessing, bring me a meal. The covenant meal was demanded by Isaac as a condition for blessing. Next week before us, the Lord's table is graciously provided for us at the cost of our covenant's head covenant head, that is Jesus, own body and blood, having fulfilled the covenant conditions necessary for our fellowship with the Father. The covenant feast and meal in Genesis 27 is perverted, but it is perfectly represented at the Lord's table. In Isaac's case, he made the provision of the meal a condition for blessing. In our case, the meal is God's grace, whereby through these means, we obtain fellowship with him.
finally, or two more. Whereas Jacob's birthright was secured by bartering and scheming, our covenant member birthright as believers is a sovereign work of spiritual regeneration. Jacob is a good example of trying to save yourself, trying to secure God's promises by your own human action, by your own efforts and endeavors. And what does it lead to? Scheming, lying, pragmatism, manipulation, so on and so forth. Nevertheless, our birthright, when you were born again, it was secured by a sovereign act of spiritual regeneration. This eventually happened to Jacob. However, we have this contrast to illustrate how powerful the true born-again birthright really is. And finally, the pronouncement of patriarchal blessing in Isaac's case was deficient. We'll go into this more in future messages. But it was deficient in its intent and even in some ways is missing content. However, the priestly prayers of Jesus are applied ultimately and absolutely and all, for all of the elect. And you can read of them in John 17. And Jesus leaves this earth in Luke 24, 15 through 52 with a covenant blessing for his believers and followers, those that followed him at the time and all who will follow them after if you are in Christ, even you and me. The patriarchal blessing was corrupted in some ways in this passage, though God preserved a testimony that we can view. Nevertheless, the blessing that our covenant had grants to us is absolutely perfect. Thus we see, even in our text today, though it features primarily the sinfulness of four characters, nevertheless, in spite of Esau, Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob, Jesus Christ is magnified in contrast to sinners. Let us close in prayer. O Lord, we thank you for your powerful and holy word. We thank you for the messages contained in the bold and uncompromising truth of your scripture. I pray that you would move through the proclamation of your word, us to hear and to bow before its authority. If there are any lost in the hearing of this message, that they would repent of trying to procure salvation and hope by their own means, which is to dig a pit further toward hell. I pray that they would repent and turn to the only covenant head that could truly save. There is no hope in ourselves. Our story proves it. Our lives prove it. Nevertheless, in Jesus Christ, the only perfect man is hope eternal. It is his name we cling to. It is his name we proclaim. It is his name upon which we stand. And it is his name that we gather in even next week as you grant us grace and ability to do so, Lord. And I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.